This morning's scripture is taken from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to humid tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled up in him who is held of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, thus he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is our last week in our series on the way. Um, it's been uh, a really great, I think, experience. And I've heard from a lot of you, been interesting to read and have Sunday school and have the sermons all sort of fit together. It's been a, something that's kind of brought us all together in some ways. Uh, although every week I have heard somebody complain that there was something they really wanted me to talk about in the sermon that I didn't. Um, because there's so much in the book and so much in the material and I have to sort of pick my slice of it. Um, but it's been a great, it's been great for us all to be on the same topics for a little while. Let's just go back and recap a little bit. On week one, we journeyed to the Jordan River in the wilderness to think about the baptism of Jesus and uh, his temptation in the desert and, and uh, the start of his ministry and what his ministry was about. We traveled up to Galilee to consider the healing ministry of Jesus that he did so much in that region. Week three, we went to the mountains, talked about Jesus' teaching, and particularly I went into some detail about the kingdom of God and what is that language and how do we understand the kingdom of God because it's not typically our language for the message of Jesus. Week four, we traveled across the Sea of Galilee and talked about how Jesus calmed the storms Last week, there was a giant well up here. It's in the back because I haven't moved it yet. Um, but we talked about Samaria and how Jesus is there for the least, the lost, the broken. And we looked through the, the uh, eyes of this nameless Samaritan woman and uh, talked about how Jesus relates to the sinners and the outcasts and the poor. I think the biggest takeaway from me is just being reminded again that we are following in the way of Jesus. In fact, the early church called the Christianity not Christianity. They called themselves followers of the way, the way of Jesus. And Jesus called himself the way, the truth, and the life. So that it's not just a path that Jesus sets out before us. We're, we're following Jesus himself and to read these stories as if they have something to say about how we live today. 
So today we make our last stop on the journey. We head to Jerusalem. Uh, and it's not Easter, but that's the week we're in today for the sermon. Now, we're going to take a look at Holy Week, and I'm going to kind of walk through Holy Week in a similar way that Adam Hamilton did in his book, um, but with a little bit of different kind of backgrounds and understanding. Uh, I, am a, I am a person who follows what, what might be called the discipline of historical context. The discipline of historical context. Which means when I read the Bible, I want to try to understand it it's in its original meaning and context. I don't just read the Bible and say, well, what do I think about that? Or what does that mean to me? No, the first question is, what did it mean then in that place? Then we take a step back and apply it to our own lives. But we have this discipline that says, what does the Bible say? What did the Bible say then? And so we're going to look at Holy Week and, and we need to understand that there's a lot going on politically and socially in that time that play critical roles in how Jesus goes to the cross. Israel is sort of wrestling. See, they, they are supposed to be God's chosen people. And they're supposed to be free, but the Romans are still over them. Yes, they have their land. Yes, they have their temple. They had lost it back in the exile 400 years earlier. But here they are still under the thumb of Roman oppression. And so the question for them becomes, how do we get free? How do we make sure exile doesn't happen again? But how do we also get free? How do we stay true to God? And so there's this, there's this big balancing act that is going on. On one hand, from the prophets, they understood that they needed to stay true to the one true God. That they had gotten off track in the Old Testament and they needed to stay true. And so for some people, that really meant We've got to really follow the law. In fact, they said they needed, the way the rabbis would talk about it, they needed to put a hedge around the wall, around the law, so that there's a, you understand the idea of a hedge, right? A boundary hedge. So they didn't even, so not only would they not say the Lord's name in vain, they wouldn't say the Lord's name just in case it was in vain. See, they put extra laws in place because they want to stay true to God. At the same time, the, the, especially the Jewish authority is wrestling with the Roman authority. Okay, now the, the Romans had actually made a pretty good deal with Israel. Okay, most people in the Roman Empire had to worship Caesar. There was a saying in those days, Caesar is Lord. And there were these wild, crazy festivals to the Greek and Roman gods. But the Jewish people were actually allowed to skip those. The Jewish people were actually allowed to worship their own God and not have to pray to Caesar. So for the Jews, actually, it was a pretty good deal. Now, not everybody agreed with that. Some people called the Zealots thought, we need to kick these Romans out. And they remembered just 160 years before the, the birth of Jesus, the Maccabean Revolt, where some of the Jews did kick the, uh, the, the Romans out of Jerusalem and defended them off for eight days and eight nights. And uh, during that time, in a miracle, even though the candle was not uh, oiled, the candle stayed lit in the temple. To that, to that story is still the celebration in the Jewish faith of Hanukkah. Okay, Hanukkah, which happens in December. Okay, so some people said, we got to kick these Romans out of here. Some people said, no, 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 we've got an okay deal with the Romans right now. Let's just keep the peace. 
And so not even all the Jews agreed with that. The other people that really remembered the Maccabean revolt were the Romans, the ones who had been fought off. And so they really wanted to keep the power and they wanted to make sure there were no more riots. There was one holiday that they were especially careful about. It was called Passover. And the Jewish Passover was the holiday where they celebrated being free from the Egyptians. And what you would do is you would gather in your house and you would celebrate. You would, you would get ready. You'd get dressed. You'd have your shoes on. And you would do the story of Passover. And you would remind yourselves that you were God's chosen people. And you would get free from Egypt again. And so people would pour into Jerusalem for the celebration of Passover to celebrate their freedom. And yet they're not really free. And the Romans know this. So when the Romans, when it's Passover time, there's a whole bunch of extra guards. There's a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of extra centurions that are there. Herod is there, King Herod, and Pontius Pilate is there. They all ride into town as a show of power. And in fact, they do a crucifixion there every year to make sure they show their power. And then they actually let somebody off the hook. Pilate has this, this thing where one of the criminals will actually not have to be crucified just to remind the people who is really in charge in this period. You understand the delicate balancing act, the uh, dangerous cocktail of first century Israel where there's fear, desire, anger, ambition, caution, and risk. And everybody's trying to sort of keep this delicate balance. And then on Palm Sunday, Jesus rides in on a donkey. Into all this, the Pharisees already don't like him. They've tried to trap him. They're already plotting to kill him. And he marches in with people waving palm branches, the national symbol of Israel, and saying, save us, save us. And the Pharisees recognize it immediately. And they say, hey, tell your disciples to be quiet. We don't want to ride here. They understand the struggle. They understand the symbolism. Jesus rides in on Sunday. He looks around, and then the story says he leaves. He does not capitalize. He does not build a riot. He leaves and goes back out. Still, the point has been made that he is a king and that all these other authorities better watch their steps. On Monday, there's this really interesting story that uh, it's kind of funny in the Bible. I encourage you to read it later. It's the cursing of the fig tree. Jesus comes in. He sees a fig tree, and he wants figs, but the fig has no fig figs on it. But the text says it's not the season for figs. Okay, Fig trees always look nice, but there's only certain times where they actually produce figs. And so Jesus gets mad and curses this fig tree, even though the text tells us it's not the season for figs. Why would you expect figs, Jesus? There's no figs on any of the other trees. This is not right. Jesus passes, curses the fig tree, goes in, he kicks all the money changers out of the temple, and then on the way back, they notice that this fig tree has withered. Well, many commentaries believe this is actually a commentary on the Jewish leadership, that he has wept for Israel, that he is concerned for Israel. And even though Israel looks good like this fig tree, even though it looks like it should be producing fruit and should be doing good in this world because of the state that they're in, trying to balance this and, and learning about the law, they don't recognize Jesus when he comes walking in. 
They're like this fig tree. They look good, but they're not producing any fruit. And so Jesus does this little parable to curse, to show how Israel is going to be in trouble. And really, in 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. Israel does lose their land until in many of your lifetimes, Israel finally gets their land back. That's how long it takes. On Tuesday and Wednesday, Jesus makes at least one or two trips to uh, Jerusalem again. He does a lot of teaching. Particularly, he says some very harsh things about the Jewish leadership. Okay, let me read a couple for you. Mark 12. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and, and like greetings in the marking place and have the best seats in the synagogues and other, and other places of honor at feasts, who devour uh, widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive their condemnation. He's saying those scribes are so religious, they just like the attention. They like long prayers. There is something about giving a pastor a mic, by the way. You give a pastor or a politician a mic, it's going to go longer than you think it's going to. But they like, he's saying for scribes, it's for the attention. They want the attention. And they use other people. Then Jesus really gets a good rant going in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe a mint and dill. You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done with out neglecting for others, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So this mint thing is really kind of funny. Like you're so holy that you tithe your salt. You take your salt and 10% of it you put off to the side, but you don't care about the poor. Jesus says you have a problem. He keeps going. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside may be clean. He's saying, you make your outside look so good, but you're totally dirty and rotten on the inside. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which are outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Them's fighting words. Okay? Them's fighting words. Uh, I gotta yell my battery train out. <laughs> Those are fighting words. And you better understand, Jesus is being very intentional about this. Jesus has told his disciples that he's gonna die. He is very intentionally heading to Jerusalem. And Jesus is intentionally heading towards this fight. He is picking this fight, and he knows where he's going. On Passover, he goes to this celebration and where people are remembering that God freed them. At the point in the ceremony where they would wash their hands, Jesus washes their feet. On the part where they say the bread is broken, Jesus says, this is my body broken. On the part where they would lift up the cup to represent the blood of that Passover lamb that saved them, Jesus says, this is my blood. 
Jesus gives a lot of teaching there, trying to prepare them and pour into them for the difficulty ahead. Then later that evening, he goes to Gethsemane. He prays. He's anxious. He knows what is coming. All four of the Gospels don't don't look at this as if Jesus is accidentally killed. He gets caught up in a plot to kill him. He's choosing to do this. Then he is betrayed by a friend with a kiss. They're all betrayed, surprisingly. And they scatter. Jesus, or Peter denies him just as Jesus said he would. Throughout the night, Jesus has three religious trials from Annas and Caiaphas and then trial before the Sanhedrin. But they actually don't have permission to kill anybody. They can punish by their own system, but they can't have anybody killed. Only Rome can do that. So in the morning... On Good Friday, he's before Pilate, then Herod, then Pilate again. And if you remember the story, Pilate always has crucifixion on that day. But he has the ability to free someone as a show of power to the Jews. But the crowd chooses Jesus instead of Barabbas. Or chooses Barabbas instead of Jesus. Sometime during that day, Judas hangs himself with regret. Jesus is killed that day. He's beaten cat of nine tails whips him. A crown of thorns is put on his head. He's forced to carry his own cross. He falls and a man named Simon helps him carry it. He cries out seven times from the cross, including, uh, today you will be with me in paradise to the robber beside him. Most of what Jesus says, by the way, are psalms, which makes a lot of people wonder if he actually sang from the cross. Darkness falls and Jesus dies. After the crucifixion, he is taken down. He is partially prepared for uh, burial because Jews do not work on the, on the Sabbath and the Sabbath starts in the evening. So they have to get him ready and they'll have to come back on Sunday after the Sabbath to finish the job. He's put in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and Sabbath begins. We know the rest of the story. He does not stay in that tomb. On Sunday, he comes out and appears to his disciples, and death is defeated. I love this summary in Colossians that Paul gives us. I'm going to read it again, even though Dennis just read it. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... That means you were dead in all the things you've done and your flesh was not marked as holy. That's what, what circumcision was. God made alive together with him, having forgive us all our trespasses by canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Two things for us to think about today. One is that Jesus intentionally goes to the cross for you and for me. It's not an accident. He intentionally makes decisions. He picks fights along the way to go to the cross for you and for me. And in doing so, he tells us something about what it means to follow him. That it means to sacrifice, that it means to give up. And most of all, that the way of Jesus is not a way that is expected. Okay? The zealots want a riot. The Pharisees want a good legal person. The Romans, they want authority and power. Jesus rides in on a donkey and is crucified. 
In fact, part of what Paul has to argue in a lot of his letters is, no, 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 seriously, we, we, we serve a crucified Lord. Because who would serve a crucified Lord? We serve a Lord who died at the hands of the authorities, and now he has authority. Well, that was crazy talk. But the way of Jesus is crazy talk. Everybody catching that? It's not the way it expects. And so don't be surprised when people don't like the way you follow the way of Jesus. Okay? The way of Jesus is unexpected. It's not always logical, strategic. It's not always good stewardship. It's not always the smartest move. It's not always appealing to the masses. It's not always the best way according to the world. It means bucking up against power and political structures. It means loving and giving of yourself. It means sacrificing even when they betray you, attack you, abandon for you, you and call for your crucifixion. That's what Jesus went through for you. Don't be surprised when the way of Jesus might call you to do some unexpected things. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.